Before we get started with today's show, I want to tell you guys about betonline.ag. All eyes are on the gridiron as teams are back for another football season. And as always, BetOnline is your number one spot for all the pro and college action this season. Head to the website or use your mobile device to sign up today and receive your 50% welcome bonus on your first deposit. Use promo code BLEAVE, B-L-E-A-V, to receive your bonus today. From football, basketball, boxing, right to your favorite Vegas casino games, don't wait to take advantage of all the amazing offers on the 2021 season. Bet online, where the game starts. Good morning, good evening, good afternoon, or good night. However and whenever it is, you may be listening. Thank you for stopping into another fantabulous episode of the Take It Easy podcast live on the believe podcast network except it isn't live because it's a podcast welcome in everybody i hope y'all are doing fan flipping tabulous on this well according to my time wednesday sept oh wow that is rough i should edit that out later wednesday october 6th coming off of a day where we got to enjoy wildcard baseball. It felt so good to have October baseball back, and the Red Sox beat the Yankees. The evil empire reigns once again. The New York Yankees, now since 2009 when they won the World Series, have been eliminated eight times in the American League playoffs, twice by the Tigers, three times by the Astros, once by the Rays, and now twice by the Boston Red Sox. Boston Red Sox have won eight of their last nine postseason games against the New York Yankees. Red Sox have moved on to face the Tampa Bay Rays, where they might win, might lose. But it's at least going to be interesting to watch Boston play against Tampa. And I love the uh, the broadcast trying to hype up the Tampa Bay Rays by talking about all the players that have hit home runs for them and Wander Franco. And if you're a casual baseball fan coming back after a couple months and you've been big into NFL going for about six or seven weeks, you don't care about the Tampa Bay Rays, but they're really good. Take my word for it. It's going to be an interesting series. Chris Sale's going to start game one on Thursday. They'll get Evaldi back for one of them. Not sure which one, but Evaldi will be back for one of the games, whether it's game three or game four, if they get to a game four. Probably game three, now that I think about it, just so that they can save him there. Should we talk about Garrett Cole before we move on to talking football today and also playing a little clip with our buddy Cole uh, we interviewed him over on the Slump Buster. He works for NFL's Next Gen Stats. One of four people working in the analytics department over at Next Gen Stats, actually doing the numbers crunch and working in non-traditional media. We'll play a little clip of that. Slump Buster takeover here today. But first, let's do Garrett Cole talk. The plugging everything that we have here has been a, a theme of this podcast. I'm very good at plugging things, like checking out the link in the description to today's episode to check out all of the work that we're doing here, whether it's the Slump Buster or the DSD Pod or Red Rain or all the stuff that we're working on. You can check that out with the link in the description to today's episode. Garrett Cole, 
the Yankees starter, what barely made it two innings. Um, he gave up three runs, allowed two runners on base before being pulled, and kind of knew he was going to get pulled too. Like they'd gone to the bullpen early in the game. It was a contingency plan for the Yankees. And I think if if the offense hadn't done the Yankees offense thing where they're just super inconsistent and fittingly their only two runs of the game came on home runs, I think the the enduring legacy of the Yankees keg softball team is going to be exactly that, that they had two runs in the wild card game, both came on solo home runs, and with the fading of Garrett Cole, may or may not having something to do with sticky stuff, but still the fading of Garrett Cole down the stretch of the season, you saw the New York Yankees get eliminated in the wild card, eliminated before the World Series for the eighth time in 11 seasons, which is kind of hard to fathom. Like the Yankees have been bad for a really, I'm not bad. The Yankees have been this team for a really long time now, like a decade straight. The Yankees have been this team that's just never good enough. Like they can never get the generation type player in baseball, which those players don't become available very often. Like the Yankees were fortunate enough to draft a couple of those people like Derek Jeter or Mariana Rivera in the 1990s and build that team. And then they got Alex Rodriguez at an opportune time. But since then they haven't really been able to get that guy and they can still build around the fringes. And with all the money and resources that they have, they can still build a really good team. But you look at like their major acquisitions across the last few years, judge, very good player. He's going to finish third in the MVP this year. He's finished second before very good player, not hall of fame. Good, but still a very, very good player. Giancarlo Stanton, MVP, very, very good player. They gave up a lot to get him and are paying him ridiculous amounts of money across a decade, but very good player. Garrett Cole, making more money than any pitcher in baseball by a significant margin, very good pitcher. But if you think of the best of the best players in baseball across the last five to seven years, you think of Mike Trout, Mookie Betts, Christian Yelich. Bryce Harper, Fernando Tatis, maybe throwing Manny Machado just possibly into the mix there. Paul Goldschmidt, Nolan Arenado, Chris Bryant. None of those players end up on the New York Yankees. If you think of like the 10 best play, the 10 best hitters and the 10 best pitchers in baseball, the one you could argue and it's debatable is Stanton. And even with that, and Judge is probably right there too, but if you think of the generational players in baseball, they none of the best of the best play for the Yankees. And of course, like there's 30 teams. It's not like it's a given right that the Yankees are going to get these players, but in this case, it's kind of weird that they don't get a single one, considering that even without one of those players, they can still build a super competitive team around the fringes. Like they bring in Giovanni Urshela, revive his career. They get Luke Voigt for basically nothing. He leads the league in home runs one year. They bring in DJ LeMahieu on a cheap contract, and he gave them three really good years. Did they need to sign him to a second contract? No, that was probably a mistake, and it's not going to age very well. Just like most of this Yankees roster, those contracts are not going to age well. They got Glaber Torres in a trade for Chapman, then re-signed Chapman. They got uh, Gary Sanchez, was a great developed prospect through their farm system. 
Uh, Aaron Hicks, they picked up off the scrap heap from the Minnesota Twins and turned him into a star for a couple of years. They've had a bunch of big successes and have been run really well. It's how you make the playoffs every single year. Just because you have tons of money doesn't guarantee that you're going to make the playoffs every single year. Just ask the Philadelphia Phillies who can't figure their shit out. Or the Cubs, who are now irrelevant, even with ridiculous amounts of money, they had to tear everything down because they didn't build sustainably. So the Yankees have been really smart, like good enough to get to the playoffs. Cashman's a Hall of Fame general manager, but they've kind of been the exact same team for a decade. And if you want to go back and say two decades, save for the one season where they bought a championship with weak competition in the American League, sure, we can go back and talk about that. But still, the Yankees have basically been the same team most of my baseball-loving lifetime. And trading for Gallo, trading for Rizzo, those were, you know, kind of bold moves. They got Jamison Tayon, which felt like just replicating the James Paxton trade for a couple years ago. We didn't even get to see if the Yankees weren't going to have a third starter to pitch in a game three because they always have two starters, but you never know who's going to start game three for the Yankees. I joked about that yesterday. And... The Yankees kind of find themselves as the same spot they were before, except now with some kinds of financial uncertainties, like as much as the Yankees can be, because you can just take Jacoby Ellsbury's contract and toss it aside and it doesn't even matter. But still with some economic insecurities, because Stanton's making $30 million a year, Cole's making $36 million a year. Um, it's, it's interesting how they're going to maneuver the cap a little bit, and Aaron Judge, by the way, I know he's older now, but Aaron Judge, after next season, is going to be a free agent prior to his age 31 season, and he has not gotten a big contract in his career. And I found it strange that the Yankees have decided so far that they're not going to like just lock down Judge long term, and this year's obviously the year you want to cash in because he's going to finish third in the MVP but I'm just surprised that the Yankees, given that he is the recognizable face of the team, is he the best player on the team? I think Stanton is, but Judge made a pretty good case this year that he is the best player on the team. And he is, no matter what, the brand name guy. Like He is the recognizable face of that team and probably the closest thing we have to it in baseball right now because of just being the star for the Yankees. I was surprised that the Yankees aren't like locking that down. Given that he's 30 years old now and he's going to be 31 when he hits free agency, I'm just surprised the Yankees wanted to go the arbitration route and, you know, potentially let that walk out of the building. I I'm not even saying like paying Judge 6 years 150 million or 170 million is a great idea. I'm just surprised the Yankees don't want to do that or would risk losing him in free agency. Is that going to be a ramification of their spending so far, or at least spending in the past, whether we talk about LeMayhew's $16 million contract, Hicks getting a contract in eight figures and he didn't play at all this year, or like we mentioned, the $66 million allocated to Cole and Stanton. If this is all a byproduct of the salary cap falling for the or the, the the, the soft luxury tax threshold, which is basically a salary cap in baseball, if this is the ramifications like the Red Sox lose Mookie Betts, is the Yankees lose Aaron Judge, which could work out well for the, the Yankees. Like That body with those injuries going into his 30s doesn't sound super desirable. I'm just surprised the Yankees 
would be willing to put a risk on that and be okay with him walking out the door and leaving the team kind of like what's next for the Yankees because the Yankees don't usually decline but this kind of feels like a decline from 2017 being one game away from the World Series to 2018 getting pummeled by the Red Sox to making the CS again in 2019 and losing in six, pretty resoundingly, but they still bounced back kind of nicely, to losing in the second or losing in the DS last year, to now losing in the wild card game, and you're gonna lose Rizzo and well Gallo's still there, but you're gonna lose a couple of pieces here and there. Like I just don't know what's next for the Yankees. It'll be interesting to see how it plays out across the next, you know, three months or so or four months and what their reinforcements or their building around the cap is. But I'm just interested by the Yankees at this point as they get eliminated because they haven't really pivoted much across the last 10 years. Kind of been the exact same team that gets bounced by the Tigers or the Astros or the Red Sox, or the Rays. Basically, the little brothers of the American League. I mean, that's the joke I made over on Comical Sports, which, of course, you can check out with the link in the description to today's episode as well. See how good I am at shamelessly plugging our shit? I'm really good at it. I've done it across 730 podcasts. I'm a little bit upset coming into Wednesday's pod here today. Not because we don't have a guest on the pod, but... More specifically, because I forgot yesterday to celebrate the Chargers' victory. Because we have our favorite of the old-timey anthems to celebrate the Chargers' win. We just usually use all of those on Victory Mondays. And because it was a Victory Tuesday for the Chargers, I forgot to play the anthem. So, maybe belated, but let's play the Chargers' victory anthem because it's an absolute banger. And it brings back lovely childhood memories. And you guys may not know this from listening, but behind the scenes, every time I add the sound in, I listen to it all the way through as well. Because I just get a little smile on my face every time. Sometimes I listen to it twice. I think I listen to New York, New York like 10 times in a row before putting out the podcast. Because I love these old-timey anthems so much. else watch that Monday night game and just kind of feel like the Raiders were finally regressing like it just felt like it was coming this whole way like they probably should have lost to the Ravens but the Ravens fumbled the ball a couple times at the end so they probably should be a two and two team and 
Raiders have been weird all season, but this felt like the regression that was inevitably coming for the Raiders. And I've I've been thinking for really like a couple weeks about this Justin Herbert, Ben Roethlisberger thing. And I've hinted at it a couple times. We talked about it on DSD with Cam. And I, I talked about it a little bit on Friday here. But what's interesting to me is, or I'm sorry, we talked about it on Monday, um, on NFL Monday. But I find so interesting that the Pittsburgh Steelers... The way that franchises fall apart is the way that you're seeing what's happening to Pittsburgh, which is Pittsburgh has failed to address the quarterback situation, and they look like one of these franchises that, while they haven't retread quarterbacks for a decade like the Panthers and Washington and Denver, like they, they feel like they're headed towards that territory where they don't have a franchise quarterback and they don't have the means to acquire a franchise quarterback. And for a franchise like Baltimore, who's a comparable franchise to the Pittsburgh Steelers, they've won a couple Super Bowls the last two decades. They've been in a silver medal tier behind the New England Patriots in terms of success within that conference. For those two franchises, it looked like they were both headed to different places where Baltimore was going to ride into the sunset with Joe Flacco and Pittsburgh was going to ride into the sunset with Ben Roethlisberger and they were going to have great defenses and that was just going to be good enough to get by in that division by beating up on the Bengals and Browns every year. And I think the Browns getting good forced both of those teams to adapt. Baltimore is kind of correlated with Cleveland because they had the foresight to draft Lamar Jackson. And this is kind of weird to think about, but that was four years ago. Joe Flacco last took a snap for the Baltimore Ravens 35 months ago. And Pittsburgh, who is in a similar type of place with Ben Roethlisberger, because for the greatness of Ben Roethlisberger's career, like he's going to make the Hall of Fame, but Ben Roethlisberger for the past six years of his career has been good enough to get by. The last time that Big Ben finished top 10 in the league in QBR was 2014, which is now seven full seasons ago. So Ben has always been good enough to get by, but Pittsburgh's built the weapons around him, the offensive line from 2017-2018, and I've talked before, I, with all the medical accomplishments of the last 30 years, especially within sports medicine, Big Ben probably should have retired after he tore his elbow in 2019. That should have been the end of Ben Roethlisberger. The Steelers should have pivoted to another option. Even if it wasn't as good as the Chargers pivot to Justin Herbert, who's going to be their quarterback for a decade and a half, or Lamar Jackson, who, if the Ravens are smart, is going to be their quarterback for the next decade and a half. I don't know why he hasn't signed a contract extension yet, other than he's negotiating his own. Like, the way those franchises pivoted is the way that Pittsburgh has not, in the way that Carolina has not, in the way that Washington hasn't for 30 years, but in the way Denver hasn't within the last five to six years. And with the talent pool at the quarterback position now, I don't know if we're going to see these decades-long droughts of poor quarterback play. Like, the Jets seem to be cursed in the development of quarterbacks, but that's really a new phenomenon the Jets have tried. Like, when they drafted Mark Sanchez, I believe that was the first time that they really put all their chips in on a rookie quarterback since maybe Ken O'Brien. You could argue Chad Pennington had some success, but the majority of his success came with the Dolphins. So the Jets, like, were always just the get the little, like, 
quarterback in between team. Like they'll get whoever's discarded on the scrap heap and they'll do short-term, short-term, short-term quarterback to try and fix the problem. The same way Buffalo did until they drafted Josh Allen or the way Kansas City did until they drafted Patrick Mahomes where they were going from like Matt Castle to Alex Smith. Uh, You could go back further to whoever else was terrible Chiefs quarterback in the 2000s. I don't even know. I think Warren Moon was there maybe at one point. I don't know. Chiefs haven't had good quarterback play since... Well, I guess pre-Alex Smith, I guess as long as I could remember going back through NFL history. I guess in Joe Montana. Joe Montana was a pretty good quarterback for the Chiefs, but even he was discarded scrap heap at that time. So even to that point, like I don't think we're going to see decades-long droughts of quarterbacks. Think about the quarterback rankings that we had at the beginning of the season, where you have the third tier of quarterbacks. This is where the cutoff point is of quarterbacks who are not no who are a net negative like if you put a good team around them they will look good if you put a bad team around them they will look bad if you put an average team around them they will look average the cutoff point I put in there used to be Sam Bradford the bar now I think is Jimmy Garoppolo about Jimmy Garoppolo or Derek Carr is the cutoff line I think Jimmy Garoppolo has a slightly worse team than Derek Carr does this year. So, you know, you can factor that in how you may. But even still, like, put all that aside. The Der- Above Derek Carr and Jimmy Garoppolo, you're looking at, so obviously the first tier, Patrick Mahomes, uh, Aaron Rodgers, Lamar Jackson, and when available, Deshaun Watson. We're not going to talk about that stuff right now. Just when available, Deshaun Watson. Then you have Russell Wilson, Dak Prescott, Kyler Murray, Josh Allen. Then you go to the third tier. You've got whatever's left of Tom Brady, Kirk Cousins, Ryan Tannehill, Matthew Stafford, Baker Mayfield, Matt Ryan. And then you get into kind of the, the guys who we're still waiting to see. We need a larger sample size. That could be Joe Burrow. could be Tua Tungavailoa, even though it's looking worse by the week that Tua Tungavailoa misses games and doesn't really show anything super impressive. Uh, Sam Darnold. Daniel Jones, even though I'm pretty sure Daniel Jones is probably in the lower group. Daniel Jones and Sam Darnold's ceilings are not as high as, say, Joe Burrow's. They're still in the, like, wait-and-see camp for the most part, and all the rookies this year, of course. New quarterbacks come in every year. And so from there you get to Derek Carr and Jimmy Garoppolo, which is, what did we name, 14 quarterbacks off the top. Then you had, what, maybe two or three more above that? So half the league... 50% of NFL teams have a quarterback that is at the very least elevating your team in some way, shape, or form. So if this, this was not the case, like there used to be debates about whether Rex Grossman was a top 10 quarterback in the NFL. Now we're talking about like Stafford and Kirk Cousins who are significantly better than Rex Grossman. Like that it used to be like Jay Cutler was getting highest paid contracts in the NFL. And As great as Jay Cutler was, I don't think Jay Cutler at his best was ever as good as Matthew Stafford and Kirk Cousins are now because the position has just gotten so much better. And so I don't think we're going to see decades-long droughts for multiple franchises like we've seen for the past 30 years in the NFL, whether it's Washington never really having a franchise quarterback outside of even Kirk Cousins, like they lucked their way into Kirk Cousins eventually, or Cleveland going 20 years with 22 different quarterbacks before finally getting Baker Mayfield, or whether it's the Jets going 40 years without finding a franchise quarterback. I don't think we're going to have stretches like that. 
anymore in the NFL because there's just so much of a talent pool and so many of them are changing teams. So the team might not be good, but the quarterback play is going to at least elevate the team in some way, shape, or form. Which brings us back to the Pittsburgh Steelers. And I want to mix in the Carolina Panthers and the Denver Broncos here as well because I was uh, I was out playing basketball in the afternoon on Tuesday and I started connecting the dots on the Panthers and Broncos stuff because I've been making jokes at the, the Broncos expense for a long time. They've, they've had 12 different quarterbacks across the last six years. Drew Locke has come in and out like three different times and they just keep doing like little by little move to try and bring in these quarterbacks for the most part we know are mediocre but the Broncos never re- the Broncos are now the the laughing stock of the terrible team in terms of figuring out the quarterback they're the Washington for 30 years they're the Jets for 30 years they're the Browns for 20 years that's what the Broncos are now in terms of terrible quarterback play inability to get to the playoffs they have better defenses than those other teams and yet they still can't get to the playoffs and the Carolina Panthers are a similar type of boat where the pivot from Cam Newton has not been a clean transition Cam Newton was their quarterback for a decade when they drafted him first overall that was the game plan he executed it won an MVP franchise quarterback for a decade the Chargers have that with Justin Herbert and the Cardinals have that with Kyler Murray. The Cowboys have that with Dak Prescott, even though that decade is already half over because Dak Prescott's now in his sixth season. The Bengals hope they have that with Joe Burrow. This is where, and the Bengals technically just had it with Andy Dalton, who's probably the worst decade-long starter. He's the new Jimmy Garoppolo, where he was a starter for a decade. And we're like, really? Andy Dalton? That was your choice. Starter for a decade. Like Derek Carr and Jimmy Garoppolo, who are in quarterback purgatory. It's like, really? You want that quarterback for a decade? Or Ryan Tannehill, Dolphins. You wanted that quarterback for seven years. Regardless, it's besides the point. The point is that there are teams that like know they have that franchise quarterback, and Carolina had that. Denver had it for like four years when they got Peyton Manning. And, you know, they tossed aside Kyle Orton and Jay Cutler and Tim Tebow and everything else they tried to do in between. But the Broncos, that was something I figured out. Like, if you take out that four-year period, it was when um, Stripe Hype and I did that podcast. I don't know why I call him Stripe Hype still. When Blake and I did that podcast about ranking the franchises across the last 20 years in the AFC, it made me realize, like, Outside of that four-year run, the Denver Broncos have been shit. Like, it's a lot of, like, their their most memorable moment outside of that four-year Peyton Manning run was Jake Plummer winning one playoff game. And since 1998, it's been pretty abjectly a failure. Like, like Tampa Bay Bucks type, where the Bucks were... The Bucks have two championships in the last 15 years, and it's their only two good seasons. The other 13 have been shit. The Broncos are kind of that, like you you take out that four-year window with Peyton Manning and the bet they took on him, it's been like really bad for the Denver Broncos for two decades. And we don't talk about that enough because we think of the Broncos as one of these like top of the top franchises and they've made a lot of mistakes since 1998. And if you start to project the next 10 years of the NFL, which this feels like the season to do it because we've seen the transition from the old guard to the new guard. Like, you can see it. The the New Orleans Saints, great for 15 years. As long as I've been watching football, the New Orleans Saints have been great, save for like three years where they had the terrible defense because of Bounty Gate. The Saints have been great for 15 years. No longer great. 
New England Patriots, great for 20 damn years, no longer a great team. Indianapolis Colts, great for two decades, no longer a great team. This is the transition into the new phase of the NFL. That's It's been going on for a half decade, but now it's that generation's turn to dominate the league. Patrick Mahomes, MVP removed. He is the face. Lamar Jackson, he is the face. Was Deshaun Watson. Again, we'll get to that at another date when there's new updates on that situation. This is the new generation of stars coming into the NFL. Even Russell Wilson is old now. Like, Russell Wilson still plays at a high level, but Russell Wilson is 32. Like, he's on the back end of his career. I was joking with Cam on DSD, like, is Brady's going to retire Russell Wilson sooner or later. Like, even Russell Wilson drafted in 2012 is now a generation removed from the prime window of him dominating the NFL. Whether I mean, he started at a young age, so obviously Russell Wilson has gotten better now that the Legion of Boom is gone, he's still in his prime. But even Russell Wilson is aging out. And Aaron Rodgers is a generation ahead of Russell Wilson, and he's starting to age out. But it's the generation before Rodgers. It's the Brady, Breeze, uh, Peyton Manning, Philip Rivers, Ben Roethlisberger. The, the, the era of the NFL where there were only like seven or eight good quarterbacks and teams could go 20 years without being good. Those guys have all aged out of the sport, except Tom Brady, of course, but Tom Brady's the exception of all exceptions, and the sport moves on even with Tom Brady. It's a cool story on the side over here, but the league is still moving on without Tom Brady. Like, it's thriving in a way that, you know, the NBA didn't after Michael Jordan left, because football is this king sport that feels like a reality drama that gets people really excited about the shitty Panthers, the shitty Broncos, and the shitty Pittsburgh Steelers. It's still a thriving sport, even without Brady being the center of it all. And he's still like in the forefront of everything, but you have different people in different places seeing success. And you're seeing it in places that didn't have success before, and I think that's a product of there's a better chance that you land a franchise quarterback than you used to. Like if you're only if there're only 8 great quarterbacks in the NFL, like quarterbacks that elevate your team and then like if you're not a top 10 quarterback, you're kind of right in the middle type of thing. If there were only 8 of those and we subscribe to the Sam Hickey model of no one is smarter than anyone else at drafting and your best chance of getting one of these guys is to have a higher draft pick because scouting can identify people at a college and recognize okay that person is really good at quarterback and there's so much money and so much invested in the scouting of young players that at a base level we kind of know how talented certain people are going to be does that mean they're going to succeed no it's impossible to project that the same way it's impossible to bet 90 percent in gambling like it just doesn't happen but there's so much money now invested in the draft process and you've got like 17 Mel Kuypers that make you super smart about the draft process like we know who the great prospects are there's enough people invested in this that we can get a pretty good consensus or at the very least challenge preconceived notions about the position better than you used to be it's not perfect now it's just much better than it used to be because there are so many resources being invested in the development of young people and young quarterbacks and young running backs and young corners middle linebackers etc etc so if there only used to be eight quarterbacks and i listed a few of them like kurt warner's in the mix there somewhere 
you've got Cam Newton coming along in 2010. Like, you had more names, but I'm talking about, like, from that era of Brady, Breeze, like, pre-Matthew Stafford. Let's say, like, pre-2008 quarterbacks. So, Aaron Rodgers is technically a different generation, but whatever. You can throw him in the mix. If there's eight chances to get a quarterback, that means if there are 32 teams, you've got a one-in-four chance of getting one of those quarterbacks. If there are 16 or 17 of those at any given point in the NFL, like it is today, that means you have a 50% chance of netting a quarterback for a decade. Even if that's Derek Carr, and he's kind of a quarterback for a decade, but also, you can do better. You've got a 50% chance of hitting on that, and all the math is changing around whether or not you discard a rookie or not. Case in point, the Arizona Cardinals. Cardinals dumped Josh Rosen, drafted Kyler Murray, and now they have a quarterback for a decade. And Arizona has not had that quarterback ever in their franchise's history. They had to go get expiring Kurt Warner to make that happen. The Cardinals drafted Jake Plummer. Like, they've never had that quarterback across 50 years. Because they were always on the outside of that 25% every generation. Because think about it. If a generation lasts every five years, let's say every five years four new quarterbacks come into the NFL. That means you've got a 1-8 in chance every five years to net that decade-long quarterback. So if if there's like two generations playing at the same time, average career like 10 years, let's say, of like peak NFL play. So if there's four every five years, elite quarterbacks, that means you've got a 1-in-8 chance every five years of getting that franchise quarterback which means every decade, like we were talking earlier, you've got a 25% chance. Well, if you lose that lottery four decades in a row, you go 40 years without a quarterback like the Cardinals did, like the Detroit Lions kind of did. They, they had a Rodney Pete for a little bit in there, but the same way most teams do. And even if you want to say a one in three chance, you could go three decades by losing that lottery. Because today it's one in two. If you don't have one of those top 16 quarterbacks, you're trying to find one of them, whether it's free agency, the draft, trade, whatever the situation is. If you don't have one of them, you're trying to find one of those quarterbacks. Today it's only one in two. So it's somewhere between one and four and one in two. You can pick whatever number it is. I hope that makes sense too. Like I'm just saying like if there's eight total great quarterbacks in the NFL and you've got their 32 teams 25% chance of landing one of those quarterbacks and you know four new ones come in every decade which now I think is probably closer to eight there's really about two quarterbacks that come into the league in every draft class this is how teams like Arizona Buffalo they get quarterbacks in places that previously didn't have franchise quarterbacks Texans get a franchise quarterback in a place that previously didn't have those. Kansas City gets franchise quarterbacks in a places that previously did not have franchise quarterbacks for a decade or two decades in the case of Mahomes because that man's going to retire a Kansas City Chief. Winning the lottery becomes a lot easier when you have a 50% chance versus a 25% chance. Some teams are still going to be losers, like the New York Giants or the New York Jets, (laughs) 
or the Washington football team, you're still going to lose out on the lottery every now and then because, you know, different situations and how teams are run increases or decreases your chances. But sometimes you luck into a generational type player. And even through mediocrity like the Lions, they still had a great quarterback for a decade. And through failure after failure of leadership and management from the Falcons, they still got two franchise quarterbacks back-to-back, Michael Vick, Matt Ryan, for two decades. Two decades of franchise quarterbacks back-to-back because they won that magical lottery. And so if you get lucky like that, you could have quarterbacks for two decades or three decades. Like <laughs> Green Bay's going on decade four of landing those generational quarterbacks because they've just gotten so lucky in the draft process to have Aaron Rodgers fall to 25 in the draft or whatever pick it was that they got him at when he should have been the number three pick in the draft and for Brett Favre to get traded from the Atlanta Falcons as a second round pick to you. Like they just get so abjectly lucky. And so You look at teams that have traditionally won in this lottery and think, oh, they're starting to lose this lottery of finding the franchise quarterback. Carolina, they had the franchise quarterback for a decade and now they're losing the lottery. They can't find a franchise quarterback. The Saints had Drew Brees for a decade and a half. And the Saints, like, they had Archie, um, yeah, Archie Manning, yeah, Archie Manning before that. But the Saints weren't great either. But they they won the lottery and get Drew Brees for a decade. And now they're struggling to find the next option. The Colts, Peyton Manning to Andrew Luck. Now, where are you as a franchise in terms of finding that quarterback? Carson Wentz is one of these guys that's also kind of in the middle, but he's got the injury concerns. And Carson Wentz is just a weird person to bank on. Like, he's on the fringes of being a 10-year starter in the NFL. Those are teams that traditionally have gotten the quarterback position that are now not getting the quarterback position. And what's so confounding about the Steelers by this logic, they're not even trying to hit on the board. The Steelers are just like, we're going to suff- we're gonna feel the burden of our failure and we're just going to live with it. They're not even trying to get hits on the board at this point with quarterbacks. They're just going to keep riding it with Big Ben. Now, is part of that that they don't have access to picks? Absolutely. They're taking flyers on Dwayne Haskins and no one thinks that's going to be like a top 16 quarterback. We would have seen something before that'd be like, okay, let's put him in. They're just not even trying to hit on the board at this point. Like, the Giants are technically trying, and the Jets are technically trying. Now, do they give Daniel Jones an extra year that maybe he didn't deserve? Sure, but I'm willing to suspend disbelief on that one. The Giants are committed to Gettleman and Judge and seeing this thing through. That It's, it's going to fail. They're both going to get fired, but they, they were committed to seeing it through. Is Denver willing to see through an extra year of Drew Locke? I thought so, but then they just started Teddy Bridgewater that way because their defense is pretty good, but they're still going to miss the playoffs this year. And the Steelers are just not even hitting on the board at this point. Like the Chargers tried to hit with Herbert, didn't work out. Dolphins tried to hit with, I'm sorry, with Chargers hit, it did work out. Dolphins tried to hit with Tua, probably not going to work out. But you can still throw another hit at the board within the five-year span. The Cardinals did it. They tried to hit with Rosen, knew it flopped, pivoted to Kyler Murray. You can throw another dart at the board. Or you can try and trade for one that you feel like is a pretty good position. 
For example, 49ers. They felt conviction about Trey Lance. They gave up three picks to make it happen. Rams weren't going to sit content knowing they didn't hit on Jared Goff. Pivot to Matthew Stafford, who we know is at the very least elevating a team. He's been top 16 his entire career. Might not be superstar good, but you're you're giving up draft capital and dumping cap space in order to make sure you get one of those guys. At least they're not doing nothing. And it's worked out really well for the Rams so far. I don't know if it'll sustain through a larger sample, but through four games, it's worked out quite well for the Rams. Steelers aren't even trying to hit at the board. They're just content with having to deal with this situation. And it's kind of baffling. And I think it's why I'm like, I think last year I was like angry at the Steelers and like laughing at Big Ben. And this year it's just like resignation. Like, okay, you just don't care. You just, your team is going to be abjectly mediocre and you just don't care because you're not even taking hits at the board to try and get that 50% chance at a quarterback for a decade that will elevate whatever roster you have. It's never been easier to land a franchise quarterback and some teams that we regard as like universally poor franchises or at least poor franchises my entire lifetime, Arizona, Buffalo, They're getting franchise quarterbacks in places they never did before. Kansas City's another great example. Pittsburgh, who's universally regarded as a great franchise, three coaches in 50 years, five Super Bowls. They're not even trying. They're not even trying to hit on the board. I'm sorry I knocked out one of your Super Bowls, Pittsburgh. You have six. Sorry about that. They're not even trying to hit on the board with the quarterback game. And at this point, it's just resignation. I think that's the the overwhelming feeling. Last year was about roasting the Steelers over the Jimmy Garothlisberger thing, but we used all the jokes last year. The fact they didn't learn anything from it is no longer an indictment of Big Ben. It's an indictment of the Steelers. Is part of it contract-wise? Absolutely. But we saw what the Rams did. They just didn't resign to being bad or wasting the window they had with McVay. They dumped their draft capital and went and got Matthew Stafford. It's never been easier to acquire one of these guys. And even if you don't get one of those guys, you could at least get one of the guys and not be paying Big Ben top 10 quarterback money. You could not be paying a bad contract and not have a good quarterback. Indianapolis, they had the cap space to burn, but Indianapolis is kind of in the same boat. It's like, oh, you're going to pay a bunch of money and have an abjectly mediocre quarterback. Carson Wentz is better than Big Ben, no doubt, but kind of similar vibes like Colts are like doing Steelers light at this point they didn't pivot very well from Andrew Luck but Pittsburgh's just resigned to being mediocre and not trying to hit on that 50% because 50% is not a bad option like for a quarterback we don't know about their projectability 50% is not terrible now there's some people we can look at and say Mac Jones eh, maybe he's got it maybe he doesn't but Still, they're at least taking hits at the board. They at least tried to see what was left of Cam Newton to take a hit at the board. Eh, nothing much left. Denver tried to take a hit at the board with Drew Locke. Eh, we kind of knew out the gate, not a great chance of that working out. It didn't work out, so they just pivoted and said, we're not going to try and hit on the quarterback position. We're not going to try and be the Chargers. We're not going to try and be the Cardinals, which obviously took a high draft pick to get, no doubt. We're not going to try and be the Bears. 
we're not going to try and get hits on the board. We're just going to take the mediocre quarterback and try and do the best we can with the roster we have in front of us, which can sometimes, depending on the ownership group, protect your job long enough to stay employed, which if you're a GM or a coach is something that probably matters because a lot of times you don't get another chance. But this all comes down to the fundamental question that every team should ask of their franchise. Are you trying to win a Super Bowl? Or are you trying to keep your job? Do you have a plan? Are you just going with the flow? These are questions every team should ask of their franchise. And if you're a Steelers fan, you're probably not going to like the answer you get. If you're a Chargers fan, you might not like the answer you're going to get. But at least they got that quarterback for a decade that we all know is special. If you're the Panthers and Broncos, you're definitely not going to like the answer that you find. Panthers, you'll probably like it a little more than the Broncos, but you're still not going to like the answer you find about whether or not you're trying to build a Super Bowl champion or if you're just trying to be not fired. All right, so wanted to play a little snippet of uh, the podcast I did with our boy Juju Talk Sports over on the Slump Buster with Cole Jacobson, and Cole is a analyst for next gen stats over in nfl media he does he's when you see those cool stats that pop up like speed of a guy running like sean mcveigh running to the sidelines on deshaun jackson or tyreek hill's top speed on those touchdowns when you see those graphics that's cole he's the one doing the numbers crunch with the next gen stats stuff so wanted to play a little snippet of this because i did really enjoy this interview if you want to see the full pod check well listen to the full pod check out the slump buster youtube again link in the description to today's episode if you want the full episode with our buddy cole jacobson cole how are you doing today man doing well thanks for having me on how did you find yourself in the research department for uh, next gen stats? Was that just something that always kind of like you navigated towards? I see you're a math major from the University of Pennsylvania. Uh, how did that come to be? Um, yeah, definitely a long path there, I would say. For starters, we're talking my life in a broader sense. I mean, football's always been the biggest passion of mine. I played in high school and I played what's called sprint football at Penn, which you probably haven't heard of. But what sprint essentially is, is I call it Pop Warner for college kids. So it's still tackle football, 11 on 11, same field size and everything like that. But there's a weight limit for every position, no matter what you play, which as of now is 178 pounds. So played that again in high school and college and football was a major part of my life. And coming out of school, I graduated Penn in 2019. By that point in life, I was certain I wanted to work in sports and particularly in football, just to keep that in my life in some capacity. Definitely a lot of swings and misses during that senior year, applying to different jobs, but Ultimately, during that summer of 2019, and actually at that point, I was already volunteering for UCLA football in their recruiting department. And at the time, my plan was just sort of to scrap my way up there, kind of try to get from volunteer to part-time to full-time, no matter how long it took. But ultimately, I applied to an NFL research job on a whim and it ended up working out. But actually, that job's not the one I have right now. To summarize, NFL research has three kind of sub-departments. The three are editorial, analytics, aka NextGen, and fantasy. So my original job was editorial research. That's the one I got in 2019. And I was there for two seasons. And then during this summer made the transition to the next gen team and that's where i am today 
Yeah, I know you said that you kind of wanted to like settle into that before we kind of had this interview had you on before. So how's kind of like that process been kind of moving over to that department? How big is your team? First of all, I kind of want to like get a feel for like what all goes into developing some of these stats that we hear that we never even thought about or heard about like 10 years ago, 15 years ago, 20 years ago. Are you just kind of like think of new stat ideas, new formulas, new ways to evaluate players? What is kind of like that research like? Yeah, I think our team is smaller than you would think, or at least than I assume you would think. So in terms of next-gen stats researchers, there are four of us. We have a manager, Bill Smith, and then three researchers under him, me and two other people. It isn't fair to call out the whole team because there's also a different staff called next-gen stats analysts. And they're you know, technically a different department, but we collaborate with them a lot. And they're actually, just to summarize briefly, they're kind of more directly involved with the live broadcast. If a game is on NBC or CBS or Fox, they might be feeding those anchors live information. Whereas my team, the next-gen stats researchers, we're more about NFL Network and supplying stuff that'll get used on TV during you know our TV shows during the weekdays, you know, things like Total Access or NFL Now, if you've heard of those kind of shows. So if you combine us together, we probably have close to 10 people. I'd say still a pretty small group when you think about it. You mentioned it. I am kind of like shocked that that is the team. That is the base of your guys' operation. Now, is it just all exclusively like math majors like yourself, statistics majors, or is it kind of like a good variety of different kind of backgrounds that kind of came together to form that team? Uh, yeah, it's definitely not strictly people with quant analysis majors like I did. In the researchers and analysts, we have slightly different roles, but for the research standpoint, there's really not that much hard, you know, quantitative analysis needed. Like definitely a basic background in statistics helps just because you know how to frame things in the right way. It's going to look good on TV, but I definitely don't need to be doing, you know, fancy stuff like standard deviations or Monte Carlo simulations in my day-to-day life. And even for the analysts, I think it's not quite as that necessary either. I do think for the people that really make the website work, even NGS engineers team as well, they don't really need to know the football side. They're just, their core responsibility is how do we get this data from from the players' pads to the nextgenstats.com website. So those guys definitely have to have a pretty major computer science slash programming background because yeah, what they do just to make that website work probably goes beyond anything I could even comprehend. But in terms of people that really are in the weeds with the football stuff, again, my team and the analysts, I think there's ultimately not that much hard quant analysis needed. Well, so you mentioned that you go from taking that information and then try to translate it to television and make it so that the viewer, you know, kind of understands it. So does that process involve a little bit of like dumbing things? That feels like a lot of like public relations type stuff. Uh, exactly. I would say the constant challenge for us is not just what can we find that's informative, it's how can we find stuff that's informative and then also that's going to be comprehended by the people watching on TV. There's no way we can ever complete the process of perfecting what the fans are going to love, but where it's always ongoing, we're trying to figure out what appeals to the fans. So I think things like player speed, that always gets people excited because it's super easy to understand. Things like air yards, you know, how far a ball goes beyond line of scrimmage when it's in the air. Um, so yeah, well, that's what we're always trying to approach is and we have all this information that we get from the chips and the pads, which is awesome, but how do we twist and turn it? How do we make it into something that's going to be a good product on TV. Now for yourself, Cole, you have a kind of diverse background. You mentioned you did a little bit of journalism. You did a little bit of like researching. Uh, You worked for the team out there in UCLA. What is your long-term plan? Would you like to be with a franchise, a team moving forward? Or would you like to stick in kind of like this uh, media kind of setting? Uh, longer term, I would like to be on a team in some capacity, whether that means pro or college. I think given my background, both playing the sport, but then also being a math major and stat minor, I think any kind of role that could really combine both scouting and general analytics would be something that would be awesome for me in the long term. It's being part of football locker rooms for so many years that you miss that competitive aspect of really chasing something, you know, with the media job is great. I definitely am enjoying it a lot. And I'm, I'll be super happy if I end up staying here, you know, a couple more years or whatever it ends up being. But you know, in the world of TV, it's kind of, you know, the show you're working on airs and 
it's done and you rinse and repeat the next day. But really being part of an organization where you're chasing something that matters, you know, a league championship or a Super Bowl, even if you're with an NFL team or college, you know, national championship, whatever it might be, just having that day-to-day goal you are chasing. I think that's irreplaceable in life. That's something I do want to get back at some point. But ultimately we plan and God laughs is kind of, you know what I say. It's just, you can never really cherry pick what job you're going to get one day. All you can do is approach the job you have right now, full throttle with every ounce of effort you can give. And then let the chips fall where they may from there. Well, you mentioned before also that you kind of lucked your way into this job. So it wasn't something that you had initially like intended to get into as an industry. And then, you know, one thing led to another. Exactly. Yes. A great example of it. You know, as of graduation, you know, May 20th, 2019, my plan was to be at UCLA and probably stick around there for seasons, living at home the whole time and trying to scrap my way up. And then probably no more than a month or maybe six weeks later, I had this NFL offer and all of a sudden my life path is totally different. So anything can happen. So all you can do is approach what's in front of you with the best effort you can give and see what happens from there. If you do find yourself working with the team, definitely, I, I think a background in numbers analysis and these next gen stats, I, I think can be useful as we've seen more. More and more teams start to integrate both analytics versus analytics, trying to separate what kind of is the best way to evaluate players. What statistics in football now that have come about recently do you find most useful whenever you're looking at a potential prospect, if you find yourself in the role of trying to evaluate a player? Um, it's a good question. I mean, at least for me personally, most of my scouting experience comes with college, you know, at UCLA, therefore scouting high school players. And obviously when you're scouting high school players, there's not that much advanced statistics available because, you know, there's no next-gen stats for high schoolers. It's not like pro football focus is tracking high school games. So in that regard, I think old school film analysis is the best thing you can do at that level. And even if you were talking at the big time level, you know, if you were a pro scout scouting college guys, I would say it's, it's got to be a mix of film and analytics study. And I think there's always those Twitter wars, like is film analytics better? And the obvious right answer is they have to supplement each other. There's never going to be an optimal solution where one of them makes the other obsolete. You have to have that collaboration process, uh, specifically as it pertains to like, if we want to get into the nuggets of like what specific stats are good, talking about PFF, I like their accuracy rate a lot. I think it is a good way to kind of go beyond completion percentage because you know, basic completion percentage doesn't account for you know, passes that are dropped or some things that were incomplete outside of the QB's control. You know, if he got crushed as he threw the ball, whereas accuracy rate is kind of a still imperfect but much better way to evaluate the QB's performance in a nutshell. You're looking at other positions, you know, I think missed tackles for us for ball carries is a great stat. Looking at offensive line, you know, they track how many times you get beat by a defender, even if there's no pressure. They track pressures, they track you know QB hits and sacks, obviously. So I do think there's so much out there that just goes beyond the, the old school you know, metrics of yards and touchdowns and receptions, all that kind of stuff that of course there's more room for improvement. I think football's still analytically behind of sports like baseball and basketball, but there's already been so many leaps and bounds made that it makes evaluating players just a lot more thorough and it gives you a much better chance to really get a full picture of somebody. Well, and those leagues also had like an eight to 10 year head start with the Moneyball revolution that kind of just matriculated down further too. I wanted to ask you about the college recruiting process because I've been fascinated by this for a while and you obviously have some experience behind that. And like, there's no universal database for high school recruiting and college recruiting and being on the West Coast. Obviously, there's like different regions within college football. So what kind of goes into the process of recruiting high school type players? In, in trying to get them to UCLA or Oregon or even larger schools? Yeah, well, what I would say, I guess, for starters, there might not be one universal database, but I think there are some databases that are kind of very commonly seen across the country. Like one is called UC Report, stands for Underclass Report. Another one's called Jump Forward. Those are the kind of sites where any high school player who's like even close to being on your radar will have a profile there. And if they don't have one, you'll make one pretty quickly if you find out who they are and if they're you know, anything you know decent on the field. So that definitely gives you a good starting point. You know, they're very thorough. They're, you know, if you're on UC Report, you can you can type in various filters. You can say, I want kids who are in the class of 2020 
2023 and who are at least six feet and who play, you know, either outside or inside linebacker and, and so on. And I want to see if they have five or more FBS offers or whatever you want to put in there. It kind of really helps you do the digging of finding guys that you think might be a good fit for your program. But after that first initial step of getting guys on your radar, at least from UCLA's standpoint, what I would say is that academics and character matter a lot. Of course, obviously we have tons of guys going through the tape, watching film, like figuring out if they're good enough to play for us to begin with. But even if you meet that threshold, you're not getting an offer unless you pass a thorough vetting of you know, what do your grades look like? You know, have we interviewed your coaches and other you know, authority figures in your life, even family? Like, do we know that you're a high character person that you're going to fit in this program and really going to be somebody who might stick around you know, all four years? And that's definitely what stuck out to me because obviously I'd never really been involved in that process uh, before I got to UCLA and just seeing how thoroughly they care about what the person is like off the field was something that stuck out to me. You know, so I can't really speak for other schools. I don't know how it's done in other buildings, but at least for us, that's something that is a major, major factor in how these rosters are being built. And at least this year for UCLA, you're seeing it pay off on the field. Yeah, I was just about to mention UCLA, obviously coming off a rough loss here to Fresno State recently, but the past couple of years, and you've been along for that ride, they have made a little bit of a turnaround. How do you think kind of like their process has changed over the last couple of years? And what kind of stuff do you notice with someone at the top, specifically Chip Kelly in this case, that he does to help in that recruiting process and reaching out to players and finding that diamond in the rough? I think the improvement has been there, you know, across Chip's tenure. It's been slow, but it has been there. You know, look, three and nine to four and eight to three and four. Now this year to be in above 500 finally. So the progress has been there, even though it's been a bit slow. But the biggest thing that sticks out to me about this year's team is how veteran it is. You know, there's so many, you know, juniors and seniors and fifth year guys, and even a few six year guys. I know, you know, the offensive lineman, Paul Gratton, running back Britton Brown, a few grad students who are in their six years of college. And I think the biggest reason for that is just, you know, the culture there. And I know culture is such a commonly used buzzword. I think people say it and don't even really bother to think about what it means but when I think back to what I previously said about how character and academics matter so much in the process because we recruit guys knowing that both have the academic discipline and just the general character to want to stick around here even if adversity happens and needless to say a lot of adversity happened those first two years you know three and nine then four and eight in 2018 and 19 and a lot of guys might want to jump ship immediately when you see numbers like that but this group of veterans that you know, were underclassmen then are now upperclassmen leaders they stuck around and they're willing to put in the work and try to get the program to a much better place and now this year being a top 25 team it's clear that that's been paying off so so that's what sticks out to me the most about this year's personnel. And broadly, I'd say in terms of how we find diamonds in the rough, I would definitely point to Ethan Young, a director of player personnel there. He's kind of Chip's right-hand man. So when you walk in Ethan's office, it is a ridiculous array of like every college player or high school player's name is like on a different part of his wall, like every direction you look. And he's just a tireless worker and always finds guys that might be potential transfer candidates and that sort of stuff and guys that might have the grades to fit in here. And obviously we watch tons of high school tape like any other college program does, but what he does to seek out again those diamonds in the rough guys that maybe nobody else would even think of is a major asset to the program and I know he's been a huge asset and why this year's team has been a lot better how fired up were you after Ed Ogeron's comments a couple weeks ago uh, that was fun for sure. Actually, I was sort of salty in the sense that I was supposed to be at that game because I get free tickets through working there over the summertime. But when I went to put my name and my friend's name down for tickets, it turned out there was a Friday 7.30 a.m. deadline, which I had no idea existed. So I go on the website to what I think is going to be a lock for my free tickets and they're not there. So I have to watch from home instead. So for selfish reasons, I was disappointed. But obviously watching the game, like it was so much fun. Like Because you can tell, obviously, if you know football at all, that was not a fluke win at all. Like, really outplayed them start to finish. Such domination in the trenches, you know, running the ball well all day. Charbonnet couldn't be stopped both as a runner and receiver and just to see the team really outplay a program of that caliber was super satisfying for sure have you gotten actually to interact with chip much at all while working with the program 
Pretty much not at all, honestly. Not at all. I mean, I'll see him in the weight room maybe if I overlap him with there. I'll say what's up briefly, but in recruiting, so say my supervisors are the recruiting analysts, full-time guys, um, Pete Mayberry, Brandon Jones, and then our new hire, Jordan Bland, got there right before I left at the end of this summer. And then ahead of them is Ethan Young, the guy I mentioned before. And that's about the highest people I interact with in a work setting. Uh, like if I'm at practice, you know, on the field, like I might briefly interact with coaches if I'm helping out in a drill or something or I'm videotaping something. But yeah, the guys I really work with are Ethan and the guys under him. So not quite as high as chip yeah it feels like the opposite of next gen stats where you guys have like four people working in your department and college football teams have these massive staffs that go into recruiting and coaching and administrative work and fundraising for the school like it's a massive operation i mean the watson football center it's what they call the building where the practice fields are and the weight room and all the coaches office it's like a small city in there there's people i have no idea who they are like it's just the way it is over there all right cole i have an important question it goes to a recent topic this week that actually came up do you think that bill gates in a stat sheet could win football games um if he's like the lead guy in charge i'm ultimately going to say no i think again no matter how analytically strong you are i think you got to have that background of knowing the sport but absolutely think he could be a major supplemental role to you know, a high level role to a very successful team if you think about a guy like i, mean, I know he played football at harvard so it's not an apples apples comparison but paul despodesta who used to work for the dodgers and now works for the browns and i forgot his title but he's definitely somewhere like high up like very near andrew barry the gm and like they've been so successful since they brought him in and that whole ivy type regime andrew barry from harvard kevin stefanski from penn depodesta from harvard so yeah i think the browns who sucked for so long are a great example of how getting smart people in your building is going to pay off in the long run. I only ask you that question because Joe Judge, the New York Giants head coach, actually dropped in a comment this week. Well, you know, he believes that analytics should be more used as a tool. He doesn't believe that obviously just like a super smart individual with a spreadsheet is the difference maker there. And then that comes into that argument, the meathead head coach versus the analytics department and finding that right balance between the two. What would you say is a healthy percentage between an analytics department and traditional player evaluation? It's a good question. I'd say around 50-50, but obviously it varies based on the situation, I think. In terms of player evaluation, that's where I think it actually should skew more in the direction of kind of old school film type, because no matter how good the analytic metrics are, there's still stuff that shows up on tape that you really can't account for, you know? And maybe Next Gen Stats says that Tom Brady completed 7 of 10 deep passes in a game, but maybe you watch a tape and it turns out two of those passes were tipped by a defender and happened to fall into somebody's hands, things like that, where the tape is going to help you out. I think on the flip side, I think in terms of in-game strategy, things like like when to use timeouts, when to go for it on a fourth down, when to kick a field goal. In that regard, I think it should actually be heavily skewed in the favor of analytic metrics. I think the things that are out there now, like EPA, expected points added, WPA, win probability added, and all that kind of stuff that's out there that is just available at the press of a button now because the calculations have already been pre-made. Uh, I think that can help coaches so much. I think Joe Judge is like, I know the stereotype about him is like, he'll punt it on fourth and three, no matter where the field position is or what the score is like. And that should, should not be part of the game anymore. You know, we have the tools now to know that like, going forward in situation X is going to help you boost your chances of winning this game. There's no reason any coach should not take the advantage when they have it in 